source of true delight, my unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Would you turn with me to the book of John, chapter 17? If, you're, if you don't have your Bible, I urge you to read along on page 903 uh, of the blue Bible that's in the pew in front of you. We won't read the whole chapter, but some from the beginning and some from the latter part of this chapter. By the way, the uh, sheet that was handed out last week is on the back table. For those of you who perhaps weren't here or you left yours or want one, uh, it it lists... uh, uh, types out several passages on the front and back of the sheet uh, that have to do with the Trinity. Not just statements where all three are mentioned, uh, as in the baptismal formula, baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but uh, places where all three are involved in salvation. Uh, And then at the bottom of the page, like to maybe a whole third of the page on the back, is just a list of of texts. just the references that you can go to and and just see how replete the whole of the New Testament is in the teaching of the Trinity. Uh, So that's just available for you if you'd like to have that. But this is, uh, John is regarded as the, maybe the best place in all of Scripture to go for inter-Trinitarian relationship. Uh, Glorious revelation in John uh, of the relationship of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And we catch a lot of this, uh, we, we, we catch some of this in uh, this chapter 17 where Jesus prays to the Father. Chapter 17, verse 1. <clears throat> when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then after praying for his immediate disciples in verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, 
that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we ask that you would open up our minds and our hearts to your word. Lord, that your precious revelation of yourself in Christ would loom large in our thinking, would take over our hearts, uh, would govern us, Lord, that it would comfort us and strengthen us, Lord, that we would give ourselves all the more to one another in Christ as we see how even God himself, within himself, is a God of love. Lord, we pray that we would uh, exhibit that love in our fellowship as a body. And that, Lord, because of the precious death of Christ, that we would be sustained and, Lord, equipped and strengthened to live out the precious sacrifice of Christ among ourselves and in a dark and lost world. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, Herman Bavink, a great Dutch theologian, says that the doctrine of the Trinity is of incalculable importance for the Christian religion. The entire Christian belief system, all of special revelation, stands or falls with the confession of God's Trinity. It is the core of the Christian faith, the root of all its teaching. It is the basic content of the new covenant. And he says, in the doctrine of the Trinity, we feel the heartbeat of God's entire revelation for the redemption of humanity. Not what you usually think of when you think of Trinity, is it? (laughs) You know, dry, dusty, hard to understand, three in one, the numbers don't add up. Let's just push that to the side and talk about it as little as possible. To say that it's the heartbeat of God's entire revelation for the redemption of humanity. One thing that we will see some more of, hopefully this morning, is that To see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Godhead, all intent on this one purpose of redeeming us is a glorious thing. It is a wonderful thing to see the in in all of his fullness and richness and, and the whole life, the independent life of love that the Trinity has, that Still, though he needed not anything outside of himself and was fully rich in his own personal fellowship, 
turned himself out toward us to bless us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as you will see when you yourself get into the New Testament more and more, you will just be stunned. It's like, you've heard me say this before, but when I used to go to uh, Alabama games uh, years ago, and yes, I think that uh, Oklahoma State won the right to the championship. Okay, fine. Um, but uh, that's not what we're here for, right? Uh, <laughs> um, but I would close my eyes and, and just think of the color blue. And this is back before everybody wore the same color at games. And I'd open my eyes and I'd just see blue everywhere. And then I'd close my eyes. I'm like a 12-year-old kid, you know, conducting scientific experiments. Um, and I think yellow, and I open my eyes, and then you just see yellow everywhere, you know. And, and, and I think, hopefully, as, as we talk about the Trinity these couple of weeks, that as you get into the letters of Paul, as you read John and, and uh, Re- Revelation, as you read Peter, that you'll just see the color of the Trinity everywhere. Because uh, it's there. Just from the list of verses that I, I've given you, you can just see, if this all is talking about Trinity, it's everywhere. Everywhere. It's just assumed from top to bottom. And I love this statement by Bavink that the, uh, and, and many people have talked about this, that this could only come to fruition, it, it could only be revealed to us through Jesus Christ. And that's the first thing I want to talk about is just the historical unveiling of the Trinity in the person uh, of Christ. Um, and he makes this statement that religion can be satisfied with nothing less than God himself. Okay? I mean, that's what we must have is God himself. And that's who came to us in the person of Christ, was God himself. And he revealed himself fully in Christ to be this God of tri-personality. And nothing will satisfy us except the God. There is no other God than this God of tri-personality. Gerald Bray has talked about that the revelation of the Trinity uh, as opposed to this implied Unitarianism of Judaism, the implied, you know, uh, one person uh, God of Judaism, can be explained only by the transformation of perspective brought about by Jesus. Okay? The Trinity belongs to the inner life of God and can only be known by those who share that life. Well, that makes sense. It's an inside job here, you see. It's it's the one who has been a part of that inner life who now is coming to dwell among us and reveal to us that there is a Father, there is a Holy Spirit. As long as we look at God from the outside, so to speak, we're only going to see Him acting as one because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit act in such a unity. They don't act against each other. They act in unity in all the works that they do. And so looking from the outside, we don't see so easily. But then when one who has been in the inside comes and reveals us, then we see the inner reality of God. And we begin to enter into the communion of this God that's promised us in Christ 
and so it became it became so pervasive in the New Testament. It, it it's just assumed everywhere you look in the New Testament. This is what the one of the observations of Warfield. He says this is not the birth of a new conception that you're discovering in the New Testament. It's a firmly established conception that underlies and gives tone to the entire fabric of the New Testament. It's not like in a text here or there that you find the Trinity. It's the whole book is Trinitarian to the core. All of its teaching is built on this assumption. And and it's said in such an easy way, such a cursory way, uh, just like election is spoken of as kind of just, yeah, well, God chooses. He you know, doesn't make a big deal of it. Uh, it just, the, the way the Trinity's talked about, he says, uh, the famous saying, it's almost not like you're hearing about it, but you're overhearing about it. You know? Just kind of overhearing the, the constant discussion uh, about the Trinity because it's presupposed everywhere. It's not in the making. It's already made. And they seem to have taken this up so naturally. It's not as though Jesus and uh, the Son and the Spirit were two gods added to Yahweh, but they just immediately began to think of the Father as Yahweh and the Son as Yahweh and the Spirit as Yahweh. This is Yahweh showing himself to his people. So what happened was that the Son of God, God the Son, became flesh... And then the Holy Spirit came upon the church with power. These events, this entrance of God, the Son, into history, and God, the Spirit, into history. The events, as Frame would say, of Christmas and Pentecost changed everything. And so the church naturally came to praise this God who has come in the flesh, to praise this God who has been poured out upon us and brings us into fellowship with the Son and the Spirit. And so everything in the New Testament is about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And you see it from right the beginning in Luke, don't you? Uh, in, in Luke uh, and, and Matthew 1, the, the, Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And He is declared God with us. He is declared in Luke 1, the Son of God. And then at his baptism, as you know, the Spirit comes down upon him. The voice of the Father speaks, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then all the way to the end in Matthew, uh, baptized in this new name of God. This one name of God in, in, in all covenant renewal or, or covenant making uh, in the Old Testament, at every stage, uh, God names himself. He named himself with Abraham in chapter 17 of Genesis as El Shaddai, God Almighty, the Lord Almighty. <clears throat> and in the Mosaic Covenant, he reveals his, himself as, I will be what I will be, or I am who I am. And so as, as Matthew has shown how Jesus fulfills all the covenants, and that he creates the new covenant in his blood, in which not only Israel, but all the nations will participate. In this climactic covenant, God reveals his covenant name in all of its fullness. The one name by which you will be baptized is the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's his name that he reveals to us by which we are baptized. 
And so uh, this historical unfolding occurred in the person of Christ who spoke of the fact that he was one with the Father, that he acted on behalf of the Father, that he glorified the Father. And then we saw it amazingly, the Father glorifies him. We'll look at this a little more. Um, and so this relationship, this inter-Trinitarian relationship is unfolded in the revelation of the Son. Now, so that's something of, you know, in history how it occurred uh, because of the actual entrance of God through the Son and through the Spirit uh, into history. Um, but there is in this God, as I said, this action that is... That, that and we want to talk a little bit about the unity of, of God. In all of his works outside of himself, all of these works are common to all three persons. Now, again, we mentioned last week that one of the problems of a modal understanding of God, that is that God exists in different modes along the way. For instance, he showed himself to be a father, but this... God then showed himself to be a son in redemption, and then he showed himself to be spirit in <clears throat> sanctifying us or in, in, in what the work of the, of the spirit. But it was really one God or one person acting in just different ways, just a new form of himself, rather than three distinct persons acting in these ways. But rather than that, we see that God... All three persons are engaged in all the activity that God uh, enacts. There's always this unity of action on the part of the three persons. So that you can can say the one God acts. And yet there is this distinction in how they act and what they do. Um, So... As Basil says, the Father, this is generally the way it unfolds in Scripture. The Father is the initiating cause, okay? The Son is the operating cause, and the Spirit is the perfecting cause. So there's this initiation, operation, and perfecting. Another way to look at it is this. All things proceed by the Father, or from the Father... They're accomplished by the Son. They're completed by the Spirit. And so creation, uh, we, we know that the Father, God made the world, but he made the world as clearly stated in, say, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, through the Son. And yet the Spirit is involved in Genesis 1 and many places in the Psalms uh, in, in creation. So it's good to say, God made the world through the Son in the Spirit. Here's a... Every analogy is bad, so forget this one after I tell you. Uh, No, but in a... a, There are problems with this as in all, but in a general way, the uh, architect is, is God the Father. Now, in the way we do buildings now, it would have to be the architect plus the whole company that's putting the building on, right? In that sense. But he is the planner, the architect. The builder would be Christ, but the crew to actually accomplish the building would be the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's kind of close to what it seems to be the case 
in, in redemption itself, of course, the Father has planned and sends the Son. The Son accomplishes salvation and redemption and then sends the Spirit to bring that redemption to bear in the hearts of God's people. So there's this order and theologians through the years have said there's, there's a way that God acts within himself. There's a way God acts toward creation outside of himself. But the way he acts outside of himself is not inconsistent with the way he works within himself. So it's proper that the son, with, with, within the relationship within the Trinity, that he would be the one sent. And it's proper that the Spirit would be sent by the Father and Son. It's somehow, we can't say exactly how, but it somehow reflects the relationship that is within God. So you have in 1 Peter 1, the Father foreknows, the Son sprinkles His blood, and the Spirit sanctifies. The Father plans, the Son executes, the Spirit applies. But you think of the distinction they have. It's the Father, not the Son, that sent Jesus into the world. He's a distinct person, right? It's the Son, not the Father or the Spirit, that became incarnate to die on the cross for our sins. It's the Spirit, not the Father or the Son, that came upon the church with power on the day of Pentecost. And yet, all these events require the concurrence of all three persons. So it's not as though they're all not, all three are not involved in every aspect, but there's this pattern, this order that seems to occur in, in Scripture. And you see these, <clears throat> these beautiful statements that are made like in Hebrews 9.14, Christ offers himself up to God the Father through the Holy Spirit. And you see all three persons engaged for our salvation. The Spirit sustaining the Son, strengthening Him that He might offer Himself as a sacrifice for our sins. The Father pouring out judgment upon the Son as He has been sustained by the Spirit to die for us. And I'm telling you, we just have to stand back and weep. (laughs) Stand back and wonder. That God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit saving us. Saving us. And and you see this holy, infinite strain of all three persons to redeem mankind. In John, earlier in this uh, section in the Upper Room Discourse, It talks about how the Spirit receives from Christ. Uh, Jesus says, the Spirit will speak to you what He gets from me. Uh, And the Spirit, whatever He has, He has from the Word. But what the Word has, He has from the Father. I have nothing except what I have from my Father. The Spirit has nothing except what He has from the Word. And what's so beautiful about this is, Whatever the Word has in the Father, He wishes it to be given to us through the Spirit. And so, Bavink has said that as the Son and the Spirit visibly appear in the incarnation and the pouring out of the, uh, of the Spirit upon the church, 
The mission is completed only when they come into the hearts of believers. So what is what then becomes the church of the Son and the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so there's been an eternal procession of the Son and the Spirit from the Father so that through them and in them, He, the Father, should come to His people and be in them. Isn't that glorious? That the Father sends the Son and sends the Spirit so that in them He might through the death and resurrection of the Son and through the outpouring of the Spirit, that God the Father might accomplish His purpose and make us His house. I just love that. I just love this, this, again, the Trinity all in operation, working together so the ultimate goal could be had, communion with us. Communion with us. No surprise that this God of community and infinite, eternal communion would want to have communion with us. That's just what he's about. That's just who he is. How different. Uh, Well, in fact, I'm going to leave all this off. um, I was going to talk about deism some and pantheism. We'll talk about that some next week. But... It, it shows us in this uh, operation of unity uh, the richness of the life of this God. Uh, that he is not, um, th- this God so unlike the God of, of deism who is singular and removed and unrelated uh, to anything. Uh, that he is blessed, he has a blessed life of his own uh, that God is a plenitude of, of life. Uh, that, as the old theologians would say, God in himself is not without offspring. The eternally begotten Son. It, it shows the fruitfulness of God within himself. Though, though each person of the Godhead is God in himself, as Calvin was so careful to say that they don't derive their being from each other, still we, it is revealed to us. We don't know even, as I've read several theologians, they, the wisest of them say, we're not sure exactly what this means. But it says that he's eternally begotten. And so there's this fruitfulness, this richness of life, that God is in glorious relationship with himself. And so this life implies action and productivity. He's ever the productive one, the fruitful one. And as Athanasius said, if he was not productive and could not communicate within himself, neither could he communicate to us as well. So we, the only reason that we can commune with God is that he has communion in himself. He can reveal himself in the absolute sense to the Son, the Father to the Son and to the Spirit. And therefore, in a relative sense, he communicates himself to us. And so this self-communication that takes place within the divine being is the pattern for his work of communicating himself to us. And this passage, particularly in John 17, speaks of the mutual indwelling of God. 
the mutual indwelling of God. Jesus said in John 14 that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. And he said, I and the Father are one. He, he would claim again and again the interpenetration of the Father and the Son that they would uh, each be in, would enter into each other's life. We talked about this some last week in which each person is intentionally open to the others and directed towards them in a love which is total and infinite in the word of Stanilo. It, uh, each person holds on to nothing for himself but is given wholly to the other. It's a total and infinite mutual indwelling of conscious love. This only explains the joy God has in knowing and loving others. And so God's love is, is seen in His movement toward us, toward union with us. And this is a manifestation of the fact that there is community in Him. And this love is manifested and now it is being shown to us. This love in which they enter into each other and are perfectly interior to one another. And he goes on to say, each eye never asserts himself over another eye, but regards only the other or sees himself only in the others. In this self-forgetting of each person for the other, perfect love is manifested. That's amazing to think of that within the Godhead. Um, John Frame talks about it as a disposability of each one to the others. That could be called a mutual glorification. That is, they are disposed to one another. They're disposed to glorify each other. As you see, the Father wanting to glorify the Son. The Son, the Father. And then how that Father and the Son defer to the Spirit and glorify Him, but the Son saying, I must go away. The greater works now will be yours as the Spirit comes to you. And the Spirit is exalted in His individual work. <clears throat> and so, uh, Jesus then, as we see, when He comes to us, no surprise that He is disposable to believers. No surprise that He lays His life down for us. Dear brothers and sisters, this is a revelation of God to us. It's a revelation of God to us. It's a revelation of what God is like. So that He becomes our servant. And this becomes our model, of course. That we're to model this servanthood to one another. We are to defer to one another. We're to glorify one another in this way. We're to be disposed to one another's purposes in this way. And so, here in John 17, he says that this oneness of the Father and the Son, this mutual entering into each other's lives, this mutual disposability, this deference to one another is to mark us as well. And this, as he says toward the end of this passage, uh, the glory, verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. It is a glory to be like God. It is a glory to be 
transparent with one another. It is a glory to be humble servants of one another. It is a glory to be like God. And it is a glory to think that God, in His Trinitarian fellowship, has opened Himself up to pull us in so that Jesus can say, Father, You are in me and I am in You, and I am in them and they are in me. It seems it almost seems blasphemous, except that Jesus really did say it. That we're to taste something of the sweet fellowship of God. And, of course, how else will the world know that Jesus, that, that the Father has sent the Son, that there is a Trinitarian relationship unless they see that relationship reflected in the church? So rather than so much our arguing the points of the Trinity to people, we are to be the apologetic for the Trinity. We in our very life are to show forth the unity and beauty and humility and deference and honor toward one another that manifests in our very life the life of God. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we honor you and praise you that you have given yourself so freely to us in Christ Jesus. And we pray, oh, Lord, that you would come to us and reveal yourself to us and enable us to worship you and see your beauty and honor you. And, Lord, to see that what you are doing, what you are bringing about in us by the very indwelling of the Spirit... is you're creating us a very temple of God in which the very life of God will manifest itself in us as we love each other even as Christ has loved us and laid down his life for us. This one who himself is God, who is revealed in the most striking way, as Paul says in Philippians 2, the very humility of God, that this God lays down his life for his people. Oh, Lord, we worship you and adore you and pray that you would come and meet with us even now. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Won't you chase my fears away?